Welcome to Business Unmuted, the Northern Business Podcast sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. Your usual host, Graeme Robb, is away today and has kindly asked me to step in for him. I'm Nikki Jolly and my business, HR Today, works with a huge range of clients in all kinds of sectors. So I've gained some amazing insights over the years into how different businesses and sectors operate. Make sure you never miss an episode of Business Unmuted by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio, we have David Land, founder and trustee of the Northeast STEM Foundation, a charity that aims to advance the education of young people in the Northeast in STEM subjects. And down the line, we have Dr. Roger Giorg, a financial entrepreneur, lending expert and champion of fairness throughout the consumer finance industry. So the first topic we're going to is fairness in finance. Um, So last week, interest rates for the 12th month in a row, pushing loan repayments like mortgages um, with the cost of living rises rumbling on. Um, So... With all these increases and rises, Roger, um, and you founded the campaign for fair finance back in 2017, can you tell us a little bit about it and why it's so important for the current climate? Yes, certainly. Well, it all began, uh, it all began some years before that when I bought a division a small division of the Bank of Ireland, uh, which they didn't want. Um, I put together finance from a group of of banks and investment companies, and we bought that small division. And they had about uh, 30 or 40 products, um, all different kinds of consumer and commercial finance. and they didn't want it anymore because it didn't fit. It was non-core, uh, pardon me. And the thing that they didn't like the most about it was that the customers weren't, many of the customers weren't always that pucka. Um, in those days, and this this would be just, just before the millennium, um, in those days, we, we really didn't even know here, even in the States, uh, what the word subprime meant, people people didn't really know. Um, but what they had was a bunch of subprime customers. Now, they had British subprime customers um, who, compared to American subprime customers, would probably be pretty prime credits. I mean, in America, you a subprime customer is going to be a, a you know a pretty pretty sad credit case. These people had 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 damaged, uh, blemished credit histories, but uh, the Bank of Ireland, quite rightly, for their brief, like all other big banks, didn't really want to be lending in huge numbers to these folks. So they were very happy to unload this portfolio on on yours truly. And over a period of time, I got rid of most of the products uh but kept the uh, car finance business uh the car finance clients and um i found that with the lending um having stopped from the big banks there was nowhere for these folks to go and i'm talking about even people that you know had had a 
uh, a row over their mobile phone bill. That was enough to keep them from getting a normal car finance loan. And all of these people were going to, not not villains down the boozer with baseball bats, but they were going to, <laughs> to, to firms both licensed by what was then the OFT or whatever its predecessor was, the Office of Fair Trading or the one that came before it, uh, they were they, they were going to both regulated and unregulated firms, uh, and they were borrowing at really exorbitant rates. I mean, they were just being fleeced. So I took this division of the Bank of Ireland I bought, and I converted it into uh, a British Credit Trust, which was a hundred-year-old company with a great name that was the first motor car financier in the country, and. I guess by serendipity, by accident, I founded the UK non-prime, near-prime, subprime uh, car finance market in, in this country. And we set down, um, I actually, with a pen and a pad of paper, wrote the first underwriting criteria, most of which are still in use today by companies in the near, non and subprime lending sectors. Um, and, and, and that's how it all began. Um, I just saw how badly uh, customers were treated, uh, how unfair the consumer finance world was in certain segments, uh, certainly not overall, but uh, some people were just getting away with terrible things. And um, then after a bunch of other activities, which I won't bore you with here, we ended up um, setting up a car, another car loan company independently and uh, testing the market uh, by advertising car finance on various uh, well-known price comparison websites. Okay. And, and does that link we, into your... We, we actually put money out on the street in loans uh -huh. as a customer of these websites, and we found that the things they were doing were horrendous. I mean, their landing page said, come to us for the fairest car loan. <laughs> and it was anything but that. There was one company that uh, said that. Uh, and at the same time, I got an email from them every month, which said, here's this month auction. First place on our website is six pounds per click. Second place is five pounds 70 per click. And a year later, that first place was £12 per wow. click. So that's the history of it. So how is the FAIR yeah. finance campaign doing now? What's that doing in current days? So, so the, camp, the campaign for FAIR finance began uh, by exposing uh, the practices in these websites, some of which stopped. It then moved on to work with people like the Archbishop of Canterbury when he uh, provided quite a lot of the muscle that closed down the worst elements of the payday loan industry. Okay, so it cleaned up uh, the sector, didn't it, at the time? Sorry? It's cleaned up the finance sector, is what you're saying. It's got rid of some of the It, it cleaned up yes. the finance sector, and the campaign goes on to do uh, all sorts of things. I mean, our main focus right now is the 12 consecutive interest rate rises from the poor old Bank of England that you mm -hmm. refer to, uh, none of which has done anything to stop inflation. And we warned about this over a year ago. We have what's called cost push inflation. 
It's the type of inflation that's not driven by consumer demand and therefore raising interest rates and crippling people in order to stop their spending when they're not spending and millions of them are choosing between heating and eating is a pretty stupid thing to do. So we we keep talking about that, but they just keep raising them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also, we're talking about the artificial price of energy. Uh, electricity needn't be anywhere near as high as it is. It's based on conventions from the 1980s. We're trying to get those reversed. And that that's the sort of, on the macro level, thing that the campaign does. Okay. Um, and is that is your website, thefairmoney.com, is that where individuals can go to get support and help, such as what you're talking about here? Yeah, that's our fair price comparison website for loans, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, it's very interesting history, actually, in everything that you've gone through. So moving on, employment figures. So the first quarter of 23... Uh, 2023, the Northeast had the largest increase in employment, up by 2.7%. The Northeast also show, saw the largest decrease in the economic inactivity rate compared to the same period last year, which is up by 2.3%. Lots of percentages today, apologies. Um, so David, as someone who focuses on the STEM education and just briefly explaining that that's the science, technology, engineering and maths, should the Northeast be looking at how it can encourage more people to study specifically those subjects in the Northeast and everywhere, really? Well, from someone that pushes it, of course they should. I mean, for me, engineering and manufacturing-based careers are lifelong careers. If you look at a comparison in Germany, if you're an engineer in Germany, you have the same sort of social standing as a doctor or a consultant in the UK. That doesn't seem to be the case. And that industry has, for the last 20 years, been talking about skill shortages. But the skill shortages come about, I think, more at the the start of the food chain. If you look at students going into primary schools and secondary schools, schools are completely disengaged with what industry does. There's no alignment between what education does and what industry does. It's as though they talk two completely different languages and they never even try and find a translator. So I think... It's, it's, a, it's always been a challenge, and I think we've currently got a problem where we've got a lot of people who don't want to work. There are an abundance of jobs out there, you know, in any sector, not just STEM-based ones, and people are not really prepared to, to work or to go to work and earn their money. So the challenge for us in the Northeast is, is activating those people, and I think to do that, you've got to find a way of how do I attract them in. It's not necessarily going to be by a a rate per hour but it's it's about what it does to their lifestyle how they can embrace their lifestyle how they can get value for their own personal well-being by achieving something in, in a job and in engineering or stem based subjects that's that's great you know we've gone through the biggest pandemic or the only pandemic in my lifetime yet what did we need to help us through it scientists engineers mm-hmm. to get us through that problem but I don't think we've woke up and smelt the coffee and understand that we really do need to change our approach towards what we do and how we solve our, our own problems. Don't rely on somebody else fixing it, which I think is the apathy that exists in and around a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a number of things. There. There's a lot of people that don't want to work. That's got to start to be addressed. We've got so many jobs that we can't fill, yet we've got people that sat there that could do a number of the jobs that are out there. Um, I think Amazon itself in Darlington was key. You know, they had, was it 3,000 jobs? They did. Yet the Darlington unemployment 
figures never went down. Yeah. And you have to ask why, what's that's going right. on. So yeah. that's key. I think it's very interesting, David, what you touch on in terms of schools and education. And Roger, I'm sure you would agree with me from a finance point of view. I don't think any of the educational systems are putting in the education about real life, how you manage your budgets, how you um, go into the real world and what that looks like. I mean, the, the phrase, phrase I hear a lot at school is we're educating children for jobs we don't even know exist yet. But I'm not quite sure we're educating children to the jobs we know exist well, out there. That's a really interesting point because I think what we have I'm a founder and, and uh, now chair of the University Technical College, which is in South Durham in Newton Aircliffe. That aims at 14 to 18 year olds. And I think one of the challenges that you've got there is there is a, an appetite for everyone to get to do things. In terms of the way the school's finance system works, it's archaic. It's never changed for I don't know how long. Um, it's very insular. It's a, they try and have a one-size-fits-all. They have no strategy for their educational system. You have multi-academy trusts of large size, of medium and small size. You have single academy trusts. You have local, uh, local authority managed schools. It's a complete mismatch of, of things. There's no strategy and it shouldn't be a, a, a sort of a political thing, no. one party or the other. It should be cross-party because to get the country right in terms of industry and work, you've got to get the education of the students right. And you've got these really bright young minds that have got an empty sort of brain and just want to absorb everything that comes to it. And we fail to put a strategic approach towards doing that and solving it. And it's crazy, isn't it? Because, you know, my daughter's sitting her GCSEs this week that we're all nail-biting times right now. But, you know, not everybody is measured easily by exams, but it doesn't mean they're not capable. But then sectors, finance, Roger, for example, my husband's in the finance industry, you have to pass exams if you want to be a qualified independent financial advisor. So you've got to be able to sit exams. Then there's a, a project going ahead at the moment that's looking at whether we should be doing SATs because the kids are finding it really stressful. You know, somewhere we've got to join together and that shouldn't just rely on industry to be going into schools it it should be coming from all avenues and I think I agree with you we don't really have a strategic approach in how we're going to do this but from a stem point sorry I'm going to finish on this shortly but from um, your stem project how do we attract people well I mean it's quite interesting when we started off the UTC uh, all we had was a field with some stray horses in it and we had to convince 150 students and their parents to come and, and join this this new venture that nobody had ever seen before and the way we did it was twofold one was we got business engagement uh, the UTC has probably more than 150 businesses actively engaged with the UTC the reason I got it was because I came from a large corporate Gestamp but there are a lot of SMEs that are involved. So by doing that, what we did was we showed the sort of cradle to career approach that if somebody joins and gets into this base of education, this is what you get at the end. So we showed them the end results. It's about making that more attractive. Mm. And it's, you know, there used to be the old adage, I can't remember the guy who used to be on, Kevin Webster was the mechanic on Coronation, Coronation Street. Street. And everybody thought if you got a job in engineering, you got your hands dirty and that's what it was. It's far from the truth. There are probably 15 or 20 career types that you could take. And if you go into any of the big companies now, nobody ever gets dirty doing it. It's, 
it's just well, a process. Mainly machines now, isn't it? But anyway, that's another topic in itself. Roger, you've been involved in startups and scale ups. Where and how can businesses get the best talent? How do we attract them into these new startups and scale ups in organisations? Well, I think that is the function of uh, HR and uh, you know search companies. Uh, it's very hard to uh, filter through the millions of people that are out there uh, applying for jobs. Um, there are also all the new websites, the CV websites that are, are can be quite effective. Um, I, I think it's I think it's overlaid with the. Uh, issues that uh, David and you have, have described very accurately. Um, I, I see that as the fault of the government. Um, uh, it starts with the fact that all the talented people who could take common sense approaches and resolve and even keep us from having all the issues that make business and life so challenging today um, do not bother applying for government uh, positions because it's just not worth the hassle. It's just it's mm. too much of a mess. It's too uh, it's too much. I mean, it, 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 it's it's like uh, Mr. Sunak, you know, using yesterday a photo op to go talk to farmers about food prices. Come on, you know, why not just do something? And, you know, somebody who is a, a, a good businessman is not going to go and sacrifice salary and earnings to put themselves in a in a position like that and then be criticized all all day and have to work and fight with people that may be not up to his or her level of operating so i think it i think it starts at at, at the level of our uh leadership and i think we have a a paucity we have a lack of good leadership uh, all over the world frankly at the moment i don't know how we got ourselves into that. But uh, I, I think part of the uh, apathy and lethargy that David described so very well is that, you know, kids just aren't inspired by the people they see. Um, I, I, I think there's another really big factor, which nobody seems to talk about but me, which is that, that um, up until the last few years, I suppose, uh, everything worked on the vertical. We listened to experts. Uh, we did research. We studied. We 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 stood on the shoulders of people who went before us and knew more than us. That's gone. That is largely gone, especially amongst the the younger generation. Today, it's the horizontal. How many followers do they have? What does this influencer, no matter how superficial the influencer may be, what do they say? They have three hundred and thirty-four thousand followers. I'm going to do what they say. I don't care what this, you know, this crazy old lady who's been saying this <laughs> stuff for 30 years has to say. So that that's a tough part too, because it's a major, it's a, it's a tectonic change in society um, and in business. So that's a, that's a big thing we have to uh, combat with. So I think that you have to, to answer your question, use the new uh, AI uh, websites, the CV websites and such. Um, especially, you know, the machine learning and AI enabled ones. Um, and you've got to use, uh, particularly at the higher levels or when you get to the shortlist stage, uh, uh, search firms and, and professionals who've been at it a long time and know what they're doing to just sift through people to get the right candidate. Um, David, I, 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 
I, I would just I just finish by saying there's one other thing you also need to adjust. I've written a number of articles on this. I mean, this idea that younger people have of work life balance and I'm leaving at five o'clock. I'm going cycling and, you know, I don't care, <laughs> you know, and I don't want more money. I want my work life balance. This is now part of life. Uh, I, I, I work with a lot of young people. I don't know any of them that will not insist on at least two days at home per week for any job they take. Yes, true. Wow. Yeah. It's true. Roger, the question I was going to ask, you've both sides, you've got experience both sides of what we call the pond. In terms of, and you talked about the politicians, one of the things that I think is that we have now career-based politicians. If you go back in those 20 or 30 years ago, you had people who'd worked in, in industry or in mm. life and built up a strong awareness of what was needed and then sort of became political people. Do you not think now both sides, although Biden's going to be a contradiction of this because of his age, but do you not think that the majority of those political leaders now don't really understand what what business and life is about? They just have a career? Haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't a clue. I mean, yeah, you've put your you've put your finger on it. Uh, I mean, I, as I say, I spend a lot of time around politicians, both here and uh, the other side of the pond. And most of them are indeed career politicians. They have been groomed uh, since a very young age uh, to play politics. They can't, to speak very candidly, they, they can't, you know, just they can't work a straight bat. They know that everything has to be by subterfuge and compromise and so on. And, and you know, and that's why successful thrusting entrepreneurs, if you will, go into business and don't go into government. They can't stand the, the BS, frankly. But are we going to have new entrepreneurs? Where are those going to come from? Well, oh, there's plenty of them. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. I did, did the interesting point out of what Rogers just said there, go back. I know quite a few people now in the Northeast who are becoming banks in their own right. They're entrepreneurs, they've made their money, but where companies need help and guidance, it's these people that are coming in, in now that are helping sure. them through it, rather than your tradition. Why we have a high street bank, I don't know. Yeah, they're not on the high street, but they don't do anything <laughs> for you. They, 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 they're inept, they're, they're risk averse. And so look, look, the, look the, worse, the worse things get, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, then from your viewpoint, the better the opportunities. You know, Bigger I can events. remember when I first came to this country, uh, I, I can remember entrepreneurs and tycoons and such telling me, you, you know, you, you always make money under labor. I mean, they crush everything. They're going to mess everything up. They've got <laughs> these crazy wild policies. But if you, you know, if you're under the Tories, man, they're going to be sure to screw it up for you. <laughs> So, <laughs> and on that note, I think um, we will call it a day because I think we could keep going a long time on a lot of subjects. You touched on hybrid homeworking, generations not wanting to work. There's so much in there and the politics. Right. So, I really want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Roger, and thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So join us next week for Business Unmuted, the Northern Business Podcast. Never miss an episode. Like, rate and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for today.